Good morning, all you serious food people out there. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And today, as always, uh, we ha- we're going to uh, enlighten you about the food. Enlighten, that's it. Definitely, right. definitely, definitely. Well, I always learn something new talking to our guests, and, and, and I hope that our listeners do too. Uh, we're going to begin with our favorite spice person, um, Lori Zohar, okay. who um, is going to talk to us about, I didn't know of any of these. One is Greens of Paradise, the other one is Iru, and then we have the Salinas Crystal Salt. Let's listen to Ari, who... He explains things so much better than I do. We're going to be talking to my favorite spice person, Ori Zohar of Burlap and Barrel, and he keeps educating me, introducing me to spices. I thought I knew a lot about all this, Ori, and it turns out that you keep coming up with spices I never heard of. So you picked some for today. (laughs) The what? That's our job, to keep bringing yep. you new spices you've never heard of. Well, you're doing a great job of that. Um, you've selected three of them to talk about yeah. today. The Grains of Paradise, which is a great name, isn't it? Is it Iru? Yeah, absolutely. Iru? Yep. And Salinas Crystal Salt. Let's start. What is Grains of Paradise? So grains of paradise are the seeds of the fruit. Of, they traditionally come from kind of Eastern Africa. Um, ours come from Ethiopia. And it's almost like, it looks almost like a dried fig. Um, but really, it's much more closely related to ginger and cardamom. And if you've ever had a cardamom pod and broken it apart and see the <laughs> cardamom seeds, these are almost like the seeds of like a larger cardamom pod. Um, really? And they have this like fantastical name that everybody just you know conjures travel and and you know all these like fantasies of what it could possibly be in people's minds. But really, it's it's almost like this larger, more intense cardamom seeds. And often people compare them to black pepper. They're not especially spicy, but it's it's uh-huh. almost like a much more kind of like tropical, fragrant, interesting version of of kind of a black pepper. Oh, maybe maybe I'll would it be like the roast- seeds? Maybe I'll rotate my Zanzibar peppers out to the sequence. <laughs> yeah. Is this sort of Give like a a, um, the seeds in the, um, what is it I'm thinking of? Um, oh, tropical fruit. Help me out here. Um, papaya. <laughs> is it more like papaya seed? Um, they're a little bit smaller than them. They're almost like the size, if you've ever seen, like, the broken up cacao nibs. Like, they're almost, they look very similar in, in color and in size to those. Um, and when you smell them, you'll get kind of a smell of, like, uh, like you kind of get, like, herbal, kind of, uh, like, menthol-y. You get a little bit of sweetness. Oh, yeah. Uh, you, oh, get, wow. you get a little bit of ginger out of there. It's, it's really nice and really interesting in a really cool way. So you can even throw some of these in, like, a pot of rice to have it dot the rice or even mix it into ground meat for kebabs or other things like that. And it just kind of adds like a really kind of interesting and unexpected dimension to it that I think is, is, is a fun way to kind of elevate a dish. How does it does, grow? Does it go on trees? Yeah, so it grows on trees, and, and the tree basically creates these like almost like fig-like looking fruit over it that kind of gets picked off the tree, gets fully dried in its shell, um, 
And then the shell gets kind of cracked open after it's dry and the seeds get, get kind of shaken out and separated out. And oftentimes they're separated out by hand because if you don't, same thing as with cardamom seeds, since this is like a, a, a very similar relative to it. But if you open up a cardamom pod, there's the seeds and there's this like kind of like white film around them that kind of keeps them safe and in place in there. And so it's very hard to get rid of that other than sorting it by hand. So this, like the story of many other spices, is often not done with machine labor, not done with animal labor. Very often spices are done by human labor and oftentimes very specifically by hand. Wow. And who, who grows these? Do you have any particular farmers or producers you're working with? Yeah, so the, this is a, this, they're, they're a, a cooperative in, in southern Ethiopia. We haven't actually had a chance to visit. This is one, all the like relatively newer spices from us for the past year, which have been sourced during the global pandemic, have just meant yeah. that we've had to do a lot more by, by mail. And so oftentimes we'll, we'll chat with a farmer, we'll meet with them uh, kind of via email, via somebody they'll reach out. We'll talk about how they grow, what methodologies they're using, because really that's important that they're tr- growing things as organically as possible and as regeneratively as possible and as thoughtfully as possible because that is often the, the formula for really exceptional flavor. Um, and then we'll, we'll exchange samples by mail. We'll talk to them about it. And we were able to just get these, you know, in, in the past few months just over the pandemic period. So it's a little bit different than our tr- typical sourcing process. But, you know, we're trying to make it do like everybody else is to still keep trying to bring fun and new things um, even if we can't physically travel to those places. Now, all right. There's, there's a sort of a, a horrible thing that lurks in the background in all these countries of East Africa called famine. How, how, do, yeah. how, does, that, how does that affect your supply chain? Yeah, it's, it's a big question. And, you know, one of the other big things that, that also is lurking in the background is also kind of climate change, where a lot of our partner farmers are oh, like, yeah, hey, the sure. harvest is happening later. Temperatures are changing. I can't just pick up my trees and move somewhere else. It's not a business that can pivot in the same way. And and so just on the on the famine point, I think what's it's 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 really challenging and hard. And oftentimes farmers get shortchanged in the process, where the kind of intermediaries will get the bulk of the money from the process, while the farmers end up kind of just scraping by. And so what we what we do is our whole model is to work directly with the smallholder farmers and to got pay them significantly it, yeah. more and to set them up with their own direct exporters. And so we're just trying to help them capture more of the kind of share of the money that comes through this. And the other thing that we do is we pay our farmers up front. And so we will we will pay them at the time of harvest um, and at least the, the vast majority of the shipment and so what we try to do is, like, they've already paid for the seeds. They've already paid for the labor. They've already paid for the people to yeah. help them grow and harvest and everything. And so we, we don't want to, like, have them finance our business, too. That doesn't make any sense. And so we work really hard to make sure that we can pay them as far ahead of time as possible to, to kind of just make it a little bit easier for them to go from season to season. Well, I mean, that's, that's noble. But also, of course, you get a great product in return, don't you? <laughs> Well, I, so much of our – a lot of people look at kind of spices and think about it like, it's oh, it's just a business deal. You're just telling you – send you send them money, they send you spices. But it really has so much more to do with building trust in that uh-huh. most of these partner farmers have worked with the people in their community for generations, often growing these spices for, for longer than, than, you know, most of us can imagine. And so what ends up happening is they're used to selling to the local person in the community – 
who provide some kind of value-added service. Maybe it's drying, maybe it's preparing for export, maybe it's consolidation, um, maybe it's grinding facility that they own. And so for us to come in as outsiders and be like, hey, we're here, we, we need to do a lot of work to kind of establish trust with the local farmers. Um, and, and then we have to be the ones to show them that we're kind of the, their best and ideal partner because otherwise if we're not working well with them, if they don't appreciate the partnership, if we're not treating them well, then they're going to go and sell to somebody else. And so for us to, to kind of secure their spices and the best of the best and to be the first one that they come to whenever they have the, the harvest ready, uh, we need to just be the ones that pay them the earliest, pay them the most, and that way we build kind of long-standing, mutually beneficial relationships with the partner farmers because we're not going to sue them. We're not going to send them like a 20-page contract that stipulates. It doesn't, <laughs> none of that makes sense. All we can do it is, is by kind of being really good partners and having them, us be the, their favorite person to work with. And so that's what a lot of our business is built around is to support the farmers, but also because that allows us to get their best spices and to build our business together with them. Now, these, these farmers have probably never been outside of 10 miles around their village, right? So these are, I think of these farmers as like, think of them as like really impressive entrepreneurs. They went into okay. this like, they went into farming. Everybody else is doing commodity spices. Everybody else is making fun of them for growing organically or regeneratively and saying, why waste your time? There's this, like, we, you just do this. Like, organically leads to smaller yields. It's a lot more work. Your crops are more sensitive to, to infestations and sicknesses and stuff. Like, why are you even bothering with it? And they're growing because they don't want to work around chemical fertilizers. They want to, build, they want to grow something that, that they are proud of and that tastes good to them. And they want to do, create like the best. They're these kind of passionate entrepreneurs. And it's true in some of the areas, you know, we're the first foreigners that they've seen or that they've met with. And that often goes a really long way towards establishing trust to say, we came to you, to your home, to your farm. Let's have that time together. But what we often kind of share in that conversation is we talk to them kind of, what's the price that you want for us to get to buy the top, top, top quality of what you grow? And that often is just kind of a conversation between entrepreneurs and, and it's been really impressive because we rely on our partner farmers. Part of this is they're becoming direct exporters of their own product, which really has never happened before. And so we're working with them to figure out, you know, paperwork Are they young? and regulatory stuff. So Are they young? the farmers, t it's a really good question. The next generation is, is still largely in cities. You know, it still wants to be urban, wants to get some of the, like, modern trappings of being in the big really? cities. But during the pandemic, a lot of these, the, the younger generation has gone back to their parents' farms who are typically, you know, typically the farmers that we work with are a little bit older. They're in their 40s or 50s. You know, they're not like in their 20s and 30s. But this younger generation came back to the farm. And, and oftentimes we've had a handful of people reach out to us from the nieces, nephews, or kids of the farmers saying, hey, my family, we grow nutmeg. We grow cinnamon. Oh, Would you be yeah. interested in working with us? Because they're digitally savvy, and they've read about us, and they know that there's a company in the U.S. that works directly with smallholder farmers. And so we've actually met a handful of farmers in the past year due to the younger generation going back home, living back on the farm, and starting to work on the farm. So I'm hoping this is the beginning of a younger generation of spice farmers. That's good. I mean, they, would, they have a whole different perspective one day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also thinking about how can you, you know, integrate like irrigation? How do you like, you know, how do you look at some of the traditional methods and see if there's some more, some mm -hmm. kind of newer right. technology that can kind of help, you know, improve quality and, and improve consistency. 
I'll tell you, climate change is not helping anybody. It's uh, every time we talk about any subject, <laughs> climate change comes up. You know, yeah, it's just, really scary. And the cinnamon from, for, that we bring in from Vietnam is, is the bark of trees that are 20 plus years old. And so, like, we think it's we think that it's kind of we're insulated from climate change in some ways, and that you know we can turn the air conditioner up, <laughs> but. But in other ways, like some our food systems are much more sensitive to it. And so we have some partner farmers that are trying to plant, you know, different plants that just to see like, hey, if this if this plant thrives in this temperature, maybe maybe it'll work well now where twenty years ago or fifty years ago it wouldn't have been able to live in, in the area where they're growing. Some are buying lands further north to try to kind of get ahead of climate change, which is a yeah, you know really challenging that, yeah. process. And so the, nobody knows yet, but everybody's talking about it and worried about it, and we're seeing a lot of delays in our supply chain also because the rains are coming later or because of this or that. Oh, but yeah, why they're changing are. is a big deal. It's very worrisome, and I don't know. They say we still have time, but I'm not so sure. We'll see. Now, what, what Let's yeah. move on to Iru. Yeah, what's in your market basket? Iru, okay, very good. So Iru, we're, we're going to go to the other that side. That one I never heard of, Africa never. To the west Pardon? coast. So, you're, so we're going to go from the east coast of Africa in Ethiopia, where we've got the grains of paradise, to the west coast, Nigeria, where the Iru is native to. And the Iru is the, is the kind of seeds of, of the locust tree. And so the locust tree creates these like kind of like long beans. Um, and inside there's the Iru, and, and what they do is they kind of uh, dry it out, open the beans, give them a kind of salt water wash, and then let them ferment for a little bit where they get a kind of like a little bit of like a funky, almost like a cheesy flavor. And we got, Iru came on our map through a kind of food activist, writer, chef, Tunde Wei, um, who's, who's really impressive and really thoughtful and does a lot of really, look, look him up if you haven't had T-U-N-D-E, Space W E Y, and okay. he created a site called DisappearingCondiments.com, where Iru, which oh, is traditionally used funny. to flavor soups and stews and stocks and all that, started getting replaced by bouillon cubes from like Nestle, you know, like the MSG-ish yeah. salty, you know, cubes. And he was, you know, was worried that Iru was kind of disappearing off the map, both in Nigeria and even more so abroad, where it's been almost impossible to get. So he connected us to, to a farm in Nigeria, a pretty small farm, and we got our first shipment of Iru almost a year ago to, to the day. And we only had a tiny amount. He brought back maybe 20 pounds, just like in his checked bags, you know. And we packed mm-hmm. it, and we sold out within 45 minutes. And it took us about a year because the pandemic hit and all that, everything got delayed. It took us about a year to bring it back. And now we finally have it back. We have a few thousand jars in stock, so we're not going to immediately run out. And so what is just really interesting, they're almost like the size of either larger lentils or smaller beans. Uh, you can kind of chew through them, and you get this kind of like almost like a little bit salty, a little bit cheesy, a little bit roasted, nutty kind of flavor. And it's a really awesome way to kind of add umami and depth to, to whatever you're cooking. And so if I'm making a pot of beans, I'll throw – a few of these iru iru beans directly in there. Um, wow. if, um, you know, you can also grind them and powder them and all that, but they add a really nice like depth whenever you feel like your food is a little bit too bland. Um, this this is the this is the thing that will change your mind about that. 
Could you give, spell his name for me again? Tunde, T-U-N-D-E, and last name W-E-Y. And you can go to disappearingcondiments.com, which is the website that he set up to, to yes. go more, to, to talk more about Iru. Um, or you can go, he, his website also calls From Lagos. And so um, we, we partnered with him on this. He gets 100% of anything that we make over our cost on this. And then he's going he's gonna to kind of work with the farmers to, to kind of keep growing well, how, it, keep spreading the message. How did these people know? I mean, how did you get the word out? And who, who bought up this? Uh, unusual uh, spice. I mean, wh- what kind of people? But so yeah. So, so Tunde Way is a really outspoken. Uh, you know, to to especially like the diaspora West African community in the U.S. And so when he posted about this, a lot of you were like, "Oh my God! Thank God! I haven't seen this for sale anywhere." <laughs> like, thank you uh-huh. for carrying this. So we saw a lot there of were people, people who already knew it. it. They they so, knew. Yeah, there was the, a hit. right. It was okay. like two groups of people. Like group one was people that were from West Africa that grew up with Iru in their kitchens and grew up eating it and knew it and were like, oh, great, uh, finally a source for it. And then yeah. about half of the people were people that were like, Iru, I've never heard of this. Let's check it out. And people that were kind of these like curious chefs that saw something new and said, I got to have this. I got to try to cook with this. Wow. Oh, wow. Uh, you, you meet the most wonderful people, too. That's perk, I guess, for your business. Huh? Well, I also think, I mean, part of our responsibility, we see like there's so like there's so little like crop diversity and and so little like even food diversity, and so we we now have a platform where people hopefully trust our taste and spices and what we source and where they come from, and trust that that it'll be interesting and delicious if you if you give it a try with cooking with. So if we have that platform and if we have people paying attention, we want to. Make sure you get your paprikas and your cumins and your cinnamons and your gingers, but we also want to use it to bring some new ingredients in front of you and to see if that'll be something that will be kind of maybe maybe that will click and maybe it will become a thing that more and more people start cooking with in the U.S. And so we're okay. we're always trying to kind of challenge ourselves in that direction too of saying what's the thing that people don't know that they should know and that they'll really love yeah. once they do get so to know it. So you're building demand, I, which will produce which will end up in expanding production. That's great. That's that's what we're hoping, and and the ear has been really fun to to cook with, and so I think that you'll you'll enjoy it too. There's a, there's a guy you want to be in touch with, named Steve Sando. Steve Sando is our hero. The king of beans. Oh yeah, <laughs> we love Steve. The king of beans. Yeah. Do you, do you yeah. know Rancho? So you you you're Rancho Gordo fans? Oh you. Oh yeah 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 yeah. So he's, he's so busy now. He, this is like. The pandemic yeah. turned out to be, uh, he's like inundated, so we haven't talked to him for a while. But he's, uh, he's yeah. busy as anything. So, but he no, I mean, he's he, he talking about people. genuine. He's a genuine yeah. person. He just, I love genuine people. So, so you're going yeah, to so, laugh, but I, I bought a t shirt from Rancho Gordo that I'm currently wearing. I, I, I didn't know this was uh, going to be brought up today, but uh, <laughs> but I have a Rancho Gordo t shirt on me. But. He's been really, like, we've been forcing him to be our mentor. Not that he's against it, but just that we've been just, like, kind of, we saw his business. We admired it so much. We saw somebody making a really incredibly successful business built around, you know, heirloom dried beans. And we were oh, like, yeah. if Steve built this, then, then, then that's a really good sign that there's also, we could do something similar for spices. 
Yeah, well, I, I mean, I can't remember. We we interviewed him way early on, um, and before, but then all of a sudden, um, who was it? Um, one of those um, those um, what shop was it picked him up? Um, William Sonoma was it, Rabbit? Oh, and was started it? Yeah. selling his beans, and I mean, he he just all of a sudden went like wildfire to to be so busy he could barely keep his. You know, it's head above water, so. But um, yeah, yeah. Now he's celebrating twenty years this year, which is really yeah. Crazy. I mean, I remember when he started growing those beans for um, what's her name, the Italian, the late Italian chef in Florida, Rabbit. Yeah. You know what I mean, um, some beans she Italian beans she and, and and she died before they came to fruition. So, but um, oh wow! It, it, he, at the time, I mean, people weren't doing things like that, but he was doing it. He's amazing. So, anyhow, yeah, no, yeah. we love Steve Sando. And um, so, all right, now we're moving on to uh, Salinas Crystal Salt. Now, I'm, we did a, a salt tasting a while back with somebody who claimed to be a food scientist. And his mm-hmm. he was uh, up against all of us, you know, and and he was saying it's uh, sodium chloride. It doesn't matter what else you call it; it's all the same. And um, uh, I think we I think we finally, and with this salt tasting, we uh, convinced him that there there were a huge number of differences. There were all else, and then ganged up on him. Yeah, and, but this good one on Portuguese Very chef, good. this one Portuguese. Chef um, was went through the tasting with us, and on our way out, he said, um, "I feel like a bacala." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally absolutely. Fun. So, anyhow, yeah, tell us about yeah. Salinas Crystal Salt. Why don't we back up a minute and tell us why all salts are not the same? They're not all just yeah, sodium so, chloride. I mean, there's so many reasons, yeah. but just could you? Do something yeah, quick on so, it. so there are, of course, like you basically have uh, mineral salts that have that have a, a, a various, uh, you know, amount of minerals in them from from whatever wherever they were kind of preserved and, and stuck. And that's why, like the the pink salt we see is pink because of the mineral content. We have volcanic <laughs> salt from Hawaii. Like there are all these different yeah. types of salt that were just kind of created over time with with different various minerals. And of course, we have ocean salt. And the ocean salt is kind of pumped in, cleaned, and then slowly evaporated. And every single kind of salt has a different chemical composition. Yes, it's primarily sodium chloride, but the various amounts of minerals and, and, and where it came from, there's like almost like a terroir to it, depending on where it was grown. And we see that, you know, in, in different ways. And the other point, and even some salt is just created in a lab, you know, like the, yeah. the you know, Morton salt and all that yeah. is, is literally created through a chemical reaction that binds sodium and chloride together for consistency and purity and all of that. But that, you know, that's something that's completely uh, uh, a different process than what comes from either gets mined out of the ground as a mineral salt or the stuff that gets kind of eva- evaporated from the ocean. Yeah, and that's of course, amazing to really see this. Part. There's salt yeah. flats, like uh, I, the ones I'm thinking of are from Trapani in Sicily. Just amazing, the quantity of it. Yeah. And we've been to a number of them all over the world, actually. But it's okay. Well, so, so some of the are, funny things that, that you'll hear chefs often talk about is, like, how salty a salt is, you know, <laughs> which is re- really funny. 
right? Because salt has some, like, also chemical properties on the food. You know, salt can be used as a meat tenderizer. Salt can pull liquids out of food and all that. And that's why a lot of chefs love Diamond Crystal because it has all the, like, chemical properties of a salt that impacts the food, that softens it, that, that does all the wonderful things that salt does to our food. Uh, but it doesn't taste very salty on the tongue. And so as a result, they can be a little bit more liberal with it and get the good stuff without oversalting a dish. Well, is that because of the crystal structure? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's the, the crystal structure, and, and I, you, you'll, I'll start getting out of my depth soon enough. But, but yeah, the, the crystal structure and the kind of composition uh, of the salt between how the sodium and chloride are, are kind of put together. Okay, so now what's special about you're really in love with this Salinas crystal salt? So we've never carried a salt before. First of all, salt is a mineral, not technically a spice, and we've people have given me a hard time for that. <laughs> so it yeah, you said that. I mean, for a long time you never had any salts, and then all of a sudden you started paying attention to them. Yeah, it's just because as people are looking at their seasonings, like more broadly speaking, salt is a really big part of that. And so, and also we wanted to find one that was produced really thoughtfully, that tasted. Excellent. And that's, so we, we wanted to find something that kind of met our standards. And so we have a lot of spices on our list that we want. Salt was on the list. We didn't know if or when we'd find the right one. And then we ran into David and Libby from Syracuse Salt Company in upstate New York. And a little history about Syracuse, it's sitting on top of the Salinas Shale kind of deposit, which is one of the largest salt deposits in the world. And it used to be the salt production epicenter of America, you know, until, until yeah. people started. You wrote about that salt. in your newsletter, right? Yeah, you, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they even say that, that the Salinas, the Syracuse kind of salt area where they were kind of pulling salt out of the ground was one of the main reasons why the North won the Civil War. They said that was because they had access to salt, which allowed them to preserve their food, which allowed yeah. them to feed their soldiers better. And that then they had better fed soldiers that had more energy to fight and were able to kind of sustain themselves in a bigger way. And so that was one of the keys to, to kind of turning the tide towards the North winning the Civil War. Yeah, the, the, and wow, so, that's the, amazing. the interesting thing is that uh, Sir, Syracuse, for the longest time, was a center for the production of all kinds of chemicals used in industrial processes. Oh, and interesting. Presu and presu presumably yeah. it was mining the same deposit as, as you were just yeah. referring to. Yeah, and there's still pretty massive salt mines there, but oftentimes it's kind of, you know, used for road salt or it's kind of like industrial industrial salt extraction kind of took over, and yeah, then yeah. culinary salt kind of went away from there. And so there are these big salt mines, but what the, we, we met this uh, Syracuse Salt Company started by a father and, and daughter duo, and what's really interesting is that they bought a warehouse and then they started digging. They started drilling into the ground. And you don't know how far you're going to hit and how long it's going to take you, and even if you're going to hit kind of a, a water well of, of salty water. And so they were digging and digging and digging, and they started pulling samples as they're digging to see how far they have to go because it's expensive to rent a giant, like, you know, industrial yeah, yeah. drill. And they, they ended up going down 300 feet underground, which was right above the bedrock. And what they started pulling out was salt water that was 13% salt. And so just wow. for reference, the ocean is between 3 and 4% salt. Oh, wow. um, 
Do you know that the, the saltiest place is the, the Dead Sea, you know, in between yeah, Israel and Jordan? That's, and that's yeah. in the 30-something percent salt, which is totally crazy and doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. But this yeah. salt is 13%, so it's roughly three to four times saltier than ocean water. Um, and they pull it up literally through, like, a garden hose. Like, if you have this, like, giant, like, you have this, like, well that's dug in, but it's really a, a, quite a thin pipe. And they pull it up, and they let the iron kind of settle out of it. And then they put it in these, like, evaporation trays, which, because they're just a small kind of bootstrap little operation, uh, David bought a bunch of, like, do you know, like, the, the um, uh, like, the buffet trays that have the, like, heat, the water heated underneath it so it keeps the yeah. food in the trays hotter? So he just bought a couple of those used, set them up, <laughs> and it turns out they're really nice. What, what you want is you want to slowly evaporate the water out at a pretty low temperature over a few days, and then the salt, as it evaporates, the salt, start, the salt starts collecting at the bottom and forming these kind of crystal structures, right? The, like, really, like, salt flakes that we know, the crystal salt. That's, yeah. that's, what, uh, that's what kind of a, it starts forming, these shapes, and then you scoop it out, when, when there's enough, and then you kind of let it dry and take it to a room that's kind of like a, an oven-sized, uh, room-sized oven, and then you kind of slowly dry it the rest of the way there. And so what we liked about it was, one, they were really impressive entrepreneurs and were kind of building a salt company in an area that, that a lot of the kind of food quality, like salt, had just kind of overlooked and moved on to other places from Himalayan pink salt and all this other stuff. And they were really yeah. carefully producing this really nice, very, like, crunchy salt, which is a perfect finishing salt. And the second thing that we like is that it's pulled from deep underground. So this is water that's free of microplastics, free of any other oh, contaminants, free of anything. It was really, really pure. And what we liked about this salt was the, the fact that it tasted like really pure, clean salt. It didn't have a metallic taste. It didn't have that mineral taste. It didn't have that you want from some salt, right, if you get, like, the cell gris or the like, you know, the like gray salt, like you're, that, those are the minerals in there. But this one was a really clean, really neutral, really nicely textured salt. And so we're like, all right, this is where we start. <laughs> I, I, I wonder if there's any connection between what you're just describing and uh, the, the way that the Syracuse residents fix their potatoes. Uh, oh, yes. It's so funny you mentioned that. I didn't know about this. Do you want to talk about the Syracuse uh, salt potatoes? Well, yeah, you, you, you can go ahead. I mean, that's what I was referring to, but you, you, you've written them more recently than I have, I think. <laughs> so this is something we learned about from, from visiting uh, the salt factory up there was that in Syracuse they will sell a bag of potatoes and, like, a pound of salt, and they yeah. put – they boil the potatoes in incredibly salty water and, and until they kind of get soft and, and mushy and, and, and the salt kind of permeates the whole potato. And, and that's, what, that's a dish that's, that Syracuse is, is famous for, known for, that yeah, I had right. never heard of or ever tried. There you go. Well, and and well, I didn't know I knew about it either. Well, well you know, you. The, what the word salary comes from the, from the word sal of salt. And so, like, salt so. was really, like, critical for, for most of the history of, oh, sure. of the world. Oh, sure. And Syracuse was abundant salt in it. Tax. They have all kinds of salt history. You're true. Yeah. And so um, they were, they, this was, uh, they had plenty of it in Syracuse. And so, yeah, they developed a dish to show off exactly how much salt you had with these Syracuse salt potatoes. <laughs> there you go. 
Well, we, we like these English potatoes that, that are rubbed and close to salt water, and, and they, they end up having a salt profile, too. Yeah, but anyhow. All right. Yeah. I, again, I, I just want everybody listening uh, to be aware that you should, they should all sign up for your newsletter to continue getting this kind of wonderful information that you, you didn't know you needed, but once you hear him talking about it, you know you need to know. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So your, your website, again, is? Our website is Burlap and Barrel, B-U-R-L-A-P-A-N-D-B-A-R-R-E-L. My parents are, we're, I was born in Israel, and my parents can't pronounce my company's name. Because there's too many R's in it. <laughs> but it's B-U-R-L-A-P-A-N-D-B-A-R-R-E-L, Burlap and Barrel. You can also search for us in Google and you'll find our site. And you can sign up for our newsletter. We send it out every two weeks. Which it's is free. wonderful. I, I look forward to it. And I really do. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. And you know so much. Um, Burlap and Barrel, uh, listeners, is your go-to for anything having to do with spice. So, And now also salt. Well, Ori, yeah. as usual, love talking to you, and um, uh, say hello to Ethan, and uh, I wait for your next your next newsletter. All right, I can't wait to see what we discuss next. Looking forward to chatting again. <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, just stay tuned, listeners. This is an ongoing series that's going to teach us about all the stuff about spice that you never knew you needed to know, but you do, and I'm learning all the way. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Um, I just wanted to sneak a little comment in here. Is that I? You can sneak a little comment in any time you like. Thank you. I've I've been eating these um, fermented seeds or whatever they are, the iru, out of the jar like I would a bowl of nuts. They're that good. (laughs) Anyhow, moving right along, um, a a friend of ours from a long time ago, Kate Lebo, has an amazing book out. Um, It's it's called The Book of Difficult Fruits. Now, she's a, a pie person. We interviewed her about her pie book a long time ago. She's another uh, Seattle person. We seem to gravitate to that state. So, But anyhow, you'd be amazed at what constitutes difficult fruits. And she has a whole book about them and what fun she had. So, so you're going to enjoy it and you're going to have fun too. We're, we're talking to Kate Lebo, and we've talked to her before, um, but she keeps changing. <laughs> we always talked about pies, but the book we're going to talk about today is absolutely engrossing. It's called The Book of Difficult Fruit, Arguments for the Tart, Tender, and Unruly with Recipes. Kate, I've had such a kick out of this book, I'll tell you. First thing I want to know is the first thing I want to know is how you define difficult because that changes. Yeah, definitely. And you know, it changed um, between when I when I first thought of at first I really just thought of the phrase difficult fruit and 
the mystery was what kind of fruit would that be? Um, and then as I wrote the book, definitions of difficulty really shifted every time I started a new chapter. So Aronia, my A chapter, is difficult um, because though it is, has health properties, um, it is not very tasty. Um, uh-huh. Blackberries are difficult because some varieties of blackberries are invasive and they push out um, their their native neighbors. Cherries can be difficult because within the kernel, within the pit, um, coexist both almond flavor and cyanide. Um, yeah, I know. Apricot. All sorts of ways to find. We just had somebody send us apricot pits, and I remember the original thing about how they were saying there was a cure for cancer, and then discovered it in our second. <laughs> right, and that was yeah. so. No, I I came across something called a tick berry or something like that. Oh, interesting. What is it? Was it a t- was it a tick berry? I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm maybe I'm misremembering how it was pronounced. It was something that caused you to have to rush off to the woods in a hurry after you. Oh ate. no! <laughs> oh, you mean in the book? You're talking in the book. About. It's in the book. Yeah. Oh, in the book. Oh no, there's no, there's no tickberry in the book, but there you might be thinking of thimbleberries, which Maybe that's um, that's it, are yeah. delicious and and eminently edible, but um, have these really beautiful, giant, soft leaves that um, people sometimes use as toilet paper when they're out hiking. Okay, so so, so you just need to make sure you don't get a used one. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know some some of these um, some fruits that I find difficult you didn't include. I mean, I remember when I discovered um, in Australia all of these unattended um, prickly pear cactus things, and so I just had Peter stop the car and I dashed out and gathered all these prickly pears off of the cactus. Then I couldn't get rid of the, the, the little spiny things, no matter how often I washed or washed my clothes or whatever. I mean, I was just miserable for weeks. Oh. <laughs> Did you figure out how to eat them? Oh, yeah, we, we ate them. Oh, yeah. But it's just, you know, you have to wear gloves when you pick them and but, and and she, she experienced the wages of sin. <laughs> well, anyhow, so so you did change your definition um, and uh, of difficult, um, and and what was the determining factor for inclusion in the book? Well, often, I mean, first, it, it, the, the first thing that I figured out was that I wanted it to be an and I wanted the essays to go A, B, C, D, all the way to X, Y, Z, which would mean I could only use one fruit per letter. So there are, you know, multiple fruits that start with L, for example, that I could have used um, but didn't. Um, and often mm-hmm. I would choose a fruit because um, it came – it came to me, perhaps someone suggested you should check this fruit out and I would do some research and something about it would um, spark my imagination. Or maybe it was a fruit that I um, love or a fruit I'm well acquainted with. Um, or it was a fruit that I'd been hearing about for a while, didn't know anything about and wanted to encounter. Um, in a couple instances, for example, my U chapter, um, in that case, I ended up um, selecting ume plums just because I couldn't find a single other fruit that started with you in the English language. Um, and that that was a serendipitous choice. I loved the accidents that came 
um, from choices like that Um, because I got to return to um, some of the talk that I had had previous or earlier in the book about um, kernels in stone fruit pits. I got to talk about ume uh, ume fruits health properties when it is um, transformed into umeboshi, which also fit Mm -hmm. with a bunch of, you know, previous themes that I had covered in the book. So it was, Mm -hmm. it was, yeah. Instinct, yeah, appetite. And some of these you, you it could be through. technically a fruit, but I mean, I I, I double took a double take on zucchini. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, but it is a fruit. Yeah, I know. Well, the most things are fruits, but this is right. You, of course, you did so much fruit. research in this, though. I mean, you you really did a lot of research. I was amazed at how much research. Yeah, and and you found out some really unusual ways of tying it into all your other interests. Like I like your your chapter on juniper berries, which I'd never known. Right, and that um, chapter really formed around in in trying to find information about juniper berries. Um, yeah, you said not, nobody ever mentioned anything. No, I mean, they're kept in, in the archives that I was looking at, in the books I was looking at, there would be this kind of sub-reference to um, abortifacients and herbal abortions. But then I wouldn't be able, within the actual juniper entries that I was reading, to find anything out about that. So I was seeing these little references, and that, of course, um, perked up my ears. I was wondering, what is going on, that uh, there's an association with abortion, but I can't actually find information about it easily, Mm -hmm. um, which led me on a very long chase through lots of different libraries and books and bookstores um, and and people um, to figure out what was that relation. And what did you conclude? Um, It is one of many uh, herbal abortifacients that were used historically by women who wanted to um, have control over their fertility and regulate their menses. Um, and I think it seems that it has fallen out of favor because it doesn't really work that well compared to. I was going to say you'd right. probably know more about it if it worked better. Anne was talking to me about it have. earlier on, and she said she now understood why gin was called Mother's Ruin. And I said, <laughs> I said I thought it was called Mother's Ruin because historically women used to spend far more time than they should in the gin mills of London. <laughs> I think both is abortion both thing didn't have anything to do with it. It had to do with the fact that they were always crocked. <laughs> yeah. No, and gin is associated uh, with women or was associated with women. So you're yeah, you said right. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one I found really curious is meddler. What did they call it in Italian rabbit? That that little fruit that has the brown spots all over it. Yeah, I can't remember what they call it. They call it the little fruit with brown spots all over. Well, I mean, this, the, you know, we kept running into this fruit in Italy over many years, and it was it looked like an apricot with brown spots all over it. So I, for a long time, thought that it was like they were just overripe or something. But then I found out, you know how fixated um, the Italians get on their uh, marzipan. And mm-hmm. I found a marzipan of a meddler fruit, with, uh, not called meddler, but called whatever it, it is. It slips my mind right now. 
and it had brown spots all over in the actual uh, candy uh, confection. And uh, so I really looked it up, and it said fruit of the meddler tree. Interesting. And but you don't have anything spot. related to a little apricot-looking thing with brown spots, do you? Yeah, no, the, said that, the brown spots do sound like the meddlers that I'm um, familiar with. But meddlers are not a, a prunus species. At least the meddlers that I write about are not a prunus species. So they wouldn't have, they wouldn't look like an apricot or have a pit or anything like that. I have a book right here called... They the have very smooth black seeds, in a couple of them, in each one of these okay. fruits. Oh, okay, so they have seeds. They sort of look like a cross between a banana and an apricot. Oh, gosh. I have no idea what that was. I wish I could remember the Italian name for it. Um, I've got, does Nespolo the Inverno sound That's it, Nespolo. What is it? Nespolo Nespolo. I can't understand. Is it called Nespolia? Isn't that what they're called? Oh, Nespolo, that's it. Yeah. Here we go. Put it, so put I just brains together. We can, we can actually come up with the right answer if we put all our brains together. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, we're looking it up in the dictionary to find out it came from the meddler trees. If I didn't know anything about the meddler tree, I really didn't have any answers until you, I found it in your book. Oh, interesting. And I yeah. just got that answer from uh, a book called The Garden of Endangered Fruit by Anna Tascalanza. Um, and that's oh, yeah. if there are people out there interested in odd fruits. She is Italian um, and writes, you know, about a bunch Spores. of really fun rare fruits. Yeah, well, it's, they, they're all over Italy, and I don't think that, there's in danger, that they're in danger of, of dying out, because they're everywhere in all the, the uh, produce markets and everything. Well, and I'll tell you what, so far since this book has been out, the two fruit fans who've been getting a hold of me are people who love Osage oranges, also known as hedge balls, and people who love meddler. And that has been so fun um, to hear from really? people who are also obsessed with these strange fruits that don't, you know, grow in many places um, and are, to some people, not edible. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's a um, – uh, excuse me, there's a um, – Oh my goodness! <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, I got contacted by um, someone from a company called Eastgate Larder um, in the UK that has been um, uh, really interested in meddler and is making um, a meddler liqueur right now uh, that yeah, I'm dying to try. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I always liked the fruit. I mean, the fresh fruit. I liked it, and I was I used to take a lot of pleasure in, in kind of running my tongue over the seeds. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, the ones that we have, I've been able to get here, I have found in the Arboretum uh, in Seattle, um, and they also come to me from another friend in Seattle um, who, uh, who will send them to me. It's just in her neighbor's landscaping, and her neighbor doesn't harvest them. Um, but other than that, I can't find meddler. I'm going to, hopefully, if I can track down a tree, plant one myself in my yard so that I don't have to keep searching far and wide for You know, something that I really didn't know a lot about, except for your book, is huckleberries. Mm. Tell us about those. So the huckleberries that I'm talking about are um, related to blueberries. 
Um, they are native to the northwest of the United States um, and the southwest of Canada. Um, and they are ripe in, uh, usually around August. Lately, they've been ripening in July, probably because of global warming. Um, and they're really interesting uh, fruit because they are incredibly delicious, incredibly intense, um, and they cannot be domesticated. So there are these bushes that really depend on a particular environment. So it's a mountain environment. Um, and they pretend, they also depend on a particular coexistence with other plants, um, in order to thrive. So they don't, they don't do very well the way that, you know, blueberries now do very well as a monoculture. And because of that, because they can't be farmed, um, they are really important to the identity of our region, of my region where I live. Um, yeah, I figured you had range anywhere yeah. from being totally free because you pick them yourself to being something like $90 a gallon. Um, they're also wow. sacred, very important to the indigenous tribes here. Um, so everybody loves them. I don't think I've ever had a huckleberry. No. Oh, well. um, I, Come visit. I did read closely about your, your, your gooseberries because, I mean, one of our most torturous experiences was in trying to grow those in our garden. We did what everything. What was so hard about it? Huh? What was so hard about growing the gooseberries? Uh, well, because before we did. The, the birds knew exactly when they were ready to eat. And, and I tried everything. I put netting over it. Did, the same thing was true though in D.C. with our um, cherry tree. Remember that rabbit? I don't remember that. Yeah, because um, birds also picked the cherry tree um, bare. But the gooseberries, we never had a chance. And and the birds were able to lift the netting. I don't know. What they Smart birds, man. It they was really sad. It's sounds like. And the funny well, part about it, my, in, in England they grow like weeds. Yeah, well, my mother planted it because... Peter's English, you know, sort of a touch of home kind of thing. But, and yeah. did you include pomegranate in here? I can't remember. I did. I thought you did. Yes, I did. Um, you know, the pomegranates. I mean, there are people who won't eat a pomegranate because of the seeds. But that's all there is to eat of a pomegranate. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what are they called? They're not called seeds. But Errol. They're called Errol. The fruit that's around the seed. There are a lot of pomegranates available for the rest of us. Right. Yes. We don't, we, don't, we don't care if they like them or not. We prefer if they, if they didn't. Yeah. Now, do you, do you know a, a company called Darigo? I don't. Darigo. D apostrophe A R R I G O, I think. Well, they, they used to be, um, grow, um, what was we were just talking about? The uh, cactus pears, right? Mm-hmm. And um, they were, when I first interviewed them, and, and they had, it was the most beautiful display. They sent a, a bunch of samples, and there were some, such a range of colors, and they were so gorgeous. Um, but they set off um, to create a seedless um, prickly pear. Interesting. Not a Which spineless never, prickly pear? Pardon? Not a spineless prickly pear, but a seedless yeah, prickly No, they, they said seedless. Oh, but I, I got in touch with them um, again, I guess, last year. 
um, and asked them if they had ever developed the, the seedless one. Just, I was curious. And they said they didn't do prickly pears at all anymore. <laughs> so, they did broccoli rob. <laughs> I would love to try one. When when our travel restrictions lift, um, I would just love to to go anywhere else in the world and eat all of their fruit. Oh, I uh, know desert fruits, eat tropical fruits. Yeah, this stuff tastes so different when you're right there. I mean, just oh, look yeah. at Central America with the uh, mangoes. Like you could say, mango. I mean, we don't come close to having anything like that by the time it says here. No, nope. I've even stopped eating avocados. The avocados that I get in Spokane are no good. They don't taste They're like awful, anything. aren't they? Yeah, yeah I'm that, wondering so. about there's a, com- a company that sells some avocado product that um, is the essence of avocado, but it's not like a, a whole fruit. I don't know what that is. Hmm. Yeah. Well, there's so many things. I mean, you could be sick with this subject now for the next 20 years. <laughs> but I only cover 26 fruits. There are just thousands and thousands to consider. Yeah. And they're more it being would... invented and evolving every day. Yeah. They, I mean, they are, they're different every place you go. I mean, there's whole Southeast Asia stuff. And um, what, was, what was it we found out was native to Australia? Rabbit that nobody knew that it was native to Australia. I can't remember. Mac- macadamia nuts? Oh, that was it. It was not, not a fruit. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know that they popped up first in um, in Queensland, Australia, rather than in Hawaii. So, but you could, it's a good study of history going through all these fruits and nuts and stuff. So, anyhow, what fruit did you find the most surprising? Oh, gosh. I'm trying to think what sort of surprise it had for me. I'm going to look at my um, table of contents for a second to remember. You know, I was really surprised to learn about citrus via my study of yuzu. I didn't know that all citrus basically come from three parents. Um, I didn't know that um, if you kind of think about the qualities of a citrus according to those three parents, and if I remember correctly, they are uh, the citron, which has, it smells amazing, has a really beautiful thick peel that not, doesn't have very much fruit, what we would call fruit to it. Um, I think it's the tangerine, which is sweet and, and juicy. And then the third one, I can think of it. Hmm. Off the top of my head, I can't think of it. I'll try see if I can remember. Anyway, um, the research that I was doing to try to understand kind of, uh, you know, what uh, Yuzu's qualities were, its history and all that, led me just down into a rabbit hole about citrus in general. And it was uh, so interesting to learn that, for example, the um, seeds, if you plant um, the seed of a citrus that you love, it will not come up true. You'll get an entirely new tree. Um, And I love imagining all the possibility within every single citrus fruit, every single seed will, will produce completely different citrus fruits. Um, some citrus fruits are chimera, so they um, contain the genetic material of um, two or more um, other types of citrus. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, 
and and the ways that uh, they're used all over the world by so many different cultures um, is super interesting. As is the way you can use their um, zest, you know, for cosmetic purposes for um, flavoring. You can use the pith to um, thicken jams. There's a, a ton of natural pectin in the pith. In fact, yeah, you um, you were talking. Uh, uh, what was it? What pit were you talking about? It, um, you, I can't remember now. Um, it, it, I'm getting it confused because we just interviewed somebody from um, uh, what's the name of that blender? Vitamix. Vitamix that has their hundredth anniversary, a hundred um, recipe cookbook out, and um, and they they get all these funny questions from consumers and including all these things about pits oh. and it turns out that the Vitamix will, will grind up an avocado pit but oh, wow. n- not a, not would you throw a, an avocado pit in your Vitamix I wouldn't it costs 400 bucks no. <laughs> and, but it doesn't do cherries oh, cherry pits yeah, I mean look at the size difference it's funny um, but you know, I, I think I have a, a good thing for your next book. Also, is um, we've interviewed a number of, um, of fruit breeders. Do you know about oh, yeah. the? Oh my! Um, you you are isn't Seattle the home to that to the Lost Apple organization? Oh, I've never heard of that. I'll have to look that up. Check that out. It's, yeah, it, what's the exact name? We interviewed this, somebody from this Lost Apples. It was probably on their website somewhere. Um, but there were like millions of types of apples, and most of them got lost. And so there's somebody who's going around trying to discover trees or any kind of lost apple, any place in the globe. Like yeah. apple archaeologists. There was a guy. He was a he was a retired military man or something like that. He, no, no, CIA, nothing, I think it was. Nothing to do with nothing to do with fruit. Yeah, CIA, I think it was. That makes but sense. Or he, FBI. He 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 was claiming to discover that the Granny Smith apple was actually based on apples that were developed in Arkansas. Oh yeah, oh, right. That's the same guy. <laughs> and I still I still think it was a lie. I still think he was Mrs. Smith. <laughs> well. Kate, I'll tell you, I mean, you have to have a certain mental bent to be a fruit breeder because you can be breeding a new um, thing of apples. And and first of all, just picture having to sample hundreds of trees every day, apple trees and apples. Um, and well, you imagine spend, the patience it takes, right? It all was? the years between. Yeah, the 20 years, years, 20 years to develop a new breed of apple. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, anyhow, I'm I'm getting nervous about your making your meeting. Do you have far to go? <laughs> oh, do I have far to go to go pick up the baby? Yeah. yeah. What you were saying? I don't. He's fortunately he's just upstairs with his dad. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're okay. Well, so, anyhow, yeah. how's the pie business coming? Uh, you know, since COVID happened, I just shut down high school. I'm not. I I don't want to teach online. Um, uh-huh. And and Kate McDermott's doing such a great job. You know, she's she has everybody's virtual pie needs handled. Um, oh, yeah. 
So what she I said, did, I did, however, lose a bunch of money because I because um, all my freelance gigs dried up. So I ended up um, selling pie um, at my local farm. That's a uh-huh. uh, kind of across the train track. So when they have a farm stand this summer, I was doing rhubarb pies and apple pies and all that stuff, and it was such a fun way to meet my neighbors when we were all so um, separated from each other by this by this um, pandemic. So yeah, pie know. business is. <laughs> It's fun. Um, it, I, it's still a better way for me to make friends than it is to make money. Mm-hmm. And that well, will always be sure. we, As much as we traveled, we haven't been anywhere for a year and a half, and I'm, it's finally hitting me. <laughs> you know? I know, and we haven't dying. seen our grandchildren. We haven't seen our relatives of England. It's just incredible. But, well, this book, I think, will be a hit. And I don't know who your typical reader is. But um, it, it's just loaded with personality, your personality, obviously. And I mm-hmm. I like the way you weave in personal histories of, of yourself into all these stories. Um, it reminds me of, what's her name, MFK Fisher, whatever. Mm-hmm. So I, I just think you're great. Right? Mm-hmm. Cool, thanks. <laughs> what's that? Okay. Yeah, well, anyhow, listeners, it's Kate Lebo, The Book of Difficult Fruit. And um, it's, believe it or not, considering this up if it's page turner. <laughs> okay, Kate, let us know what your next project is and keep in touch. Will do. Take good care. Thank you, dear. Bye-bye. Well, I hope that you all learned a lot of interesting things from today's interviews. Um, I certainly enjoyed learning, talking to these two people. Uh, We're going to be here again next week, um, which will be Daddy's Day. Yeah, there you go, Daddy's Day. Uh, And anyhow, until then, (laughs) bye-bye. Okay. Well, that was quick. Yep. Yep, yep. So, again, same time, same place next week.